I know you're probably sick of it, but we'll start today with some coronavirus news. Surprisingly, there was other news this week, and we'll get there, so just bear with me. So let's start with this coronavirus news. Let's start with Takeda. Takeda is a Japanese drug manufacturer that is working on isolating the antibodies of those who have recovered from the coronavirus so they can make a treatment for the disease. This is all well and good, and it might even work, but their research is critical for another reason. You see, even now, we don't really understand how dangerous the virus actually is. It could be that millions and millions of people already have it, in which case the virus is not actually all that dangerous. As far as I understand it, only antibody tests can tell us if somebody who is never known to have the virus has actually recovered from it. And if the virus is all that bad, then the antibody tests will play an even more crucial role. As we've seen, as the virus spreads, we'll be shutting down more and more of our basic infrastructure. But we need to get people out and working. At a very basic level, we need to produce and distribute food and water. Who can do this work? those who have already developed an immunity to the disease. An antibody test could tell us those who are very unlikely to be carriers or transmitters of the disease. And if things are really bad, these people are exactly the people who will be able to get us back on our feet. In other news, there was an election here in Israel. Like the last two, it was inconclusive. It appears we are now entering our third overtime. People here complain about the inability to move past the political morass in Israel, but I find it comforting. One of the reasons the U.S. isn't a pure democracy is that the founders were worried about the tyranny of the majority, where the bulk of voters would deprive the minority of their rights and freedoms. There are certainly concerns about that happening in Israel. Everybody from the secular to the religious, from the Ashkenazi to the Mizrahi, from the Jewish to the Muslim, is very good at seeing themselves as a minority oppressed by the majority, the majority being everybody else. But now Israel has solved the problem. Nobody here seems capable of getting a majority. We thus have a caretaker government with a parliament that forms marriages of convenience to address pertinent individual issues, like denying Netanyahu immunity, but which is pretty much incapable of anything else. As the classic Jewish saying goes, it could certainly be worse. There was also a group of elections in the U.S. Joe Biden exploded, Bloomberg crashed, and Sanders was not the runaway winner. There are so many takeaways from this one. One is, despite all the protestations to the contrary, money still doesn't decide U.S. politics. Bloomberg spent $57.5 million in Texas. He got under 4% of the delegates. Sanders spent $5 million, one-tenth the money but got 10 times the delegates. In other words, he got 100 times the return per dollar spent. And Biden? Biden spent a half a million dollars and got over 50% of the delegates. Per dollar spent, he got 10 times the return of Sanders and 1,000 times the return of Bloomberg. All in all, it seems that money still can't buy you love, which is nice. Other takeaways? Well, a whole lot of the Democratic Party has rallied around Biden, who won the day. Biden might be a bit batty, he's certainly a little odd when it comes to the touchy-feely side of things, and uh, he's somewhat corrupt as far as I can tell. Basically, he's a Democratic Trump light. Sanders is none of these things. He's old, but he seems to be in control of his faculties. He doesn't grope women, and he seems to be pretty clean as politicians go. So why did Sanders lose? 
The answer is that Biden has one distinct advantage, near as I can tell, and I don't really know because I don't really pay attention to these guys. Biden doesn't believe in anything. He doesn't really stand for anything but Joe Biden. He's kind of like Trump in that way, but a little less obvious about it. And this is critical. People always prefer the guy who doesn't believe in anything to the guy who fervently believes in something they don't agree with. In other words, ideology often isn't a winner. That, by the way, is why I make sure my policies are weird and hard to understand. There's just so much less to hate if you can't figure out what I love. Speaking of election issues, people are saying Gantz, that'd be Netanyahu's leading competitor, didn't do better because he lacked charisma. Some have complained that voters should look past this. Gantz was a successful army commander, so he should get a pass on the charisma thing. But these people are confusing the role of the head of state. The head of state isn't some uber manager. The head of state has two jobs and two jobs only. One, make the big decisions. Not the little ones, the big ones. Two, lead. Not the micromanage kind of leading. The head of state has people for that. Instead, the head of state sets the tone in trying to protect and lift up his or her countrymen. Ideally, they know that he or she, the head of state, is there for them. This is what gets the staff and everybody else involved in the government to do their jobs as well as they can. Charisma is critical for both of these jobs. People have to be willing to follow you for you to be effective, and they have to want to follow you for you to lift them up. Do Netanyahu or Trump meet the criteria? Well, let's just say we could do better, which is why, of course, I'm running. In another piece of news, the leading maker of condoms is also a leading maker of baby formula. They make Infamil. The thing is, the company has had to write down $6.5 billion in value in their baby formula business. Why? Because the Chinese aren't having babies. I guess you can look at these businesses as a yin-yang kind of thing. Condoms go up, baby formula goes down, and vice versa. But at this point, it is clear the condom business is winning. The real question is, long-term, is it sustainable? Of course, we've talked about China's demographic problems before. Recently, researchers have noted that the coronavirus doesn't seem to affect children. I've joked before that China, facing the demographic disaster of the one-child policy, has released the virus to institute a no-parent policy. The conspiracy theory works even in the context of a global epidemic. The U.S. has $22 trillion in on-the-books debt. By some calculations, the country has another $122 trillion in unfunded liabilities. That's money owed in the future to its own citizens, primarily the elderly. And who's the second largest holder of U.S. debt? China. One way to ensure that the Chinese get paid is for the Chinese to get rid of the other creditors. The elderly and the coronavirus can make that happen. Now, do I think the virus is actually engineered to cut back on elderly populations? No, I don't. But it's a lot more fun than the reality. And what is that reality? It is, despite everything the WHO has been saying, a very poor government culture in China. I'll give you an example. Some cases of coronavirus showed up at a prison in China. The government responded by sacking the management of the prison. Okay, the management made a mistake, but they were taught to underreport problems because the first reaction of their own leadership in the face of bad news is to can those who are reporting it. A far healthier approach would be not to can people, but to learn what went wrong by working with them and improving procedures and plans. The government wants to preserve itself. It wants to look like it's taking care of business. One way to do this is 
is to hide any problems it may have. But this doesn't work so with viruses. They have a way of making themselves known anyway. The other way is to make grand gestures that do nothing to solve the underlying problems. Either way, as we see here, you can end up with a massive global pandemic. But the pandemic might not end up being the deadliest self-goal of the year, or even of the last few months. You see, there have been heavy rains for the last two years in eastern Yemen. Traditionally, this results in the spawning of major locust swarms, and traditionally, the response has been to spray those infant swarms and destroy them at the source. But everybody in Yemen has been so involved in blowing each other up that nobody has made up the time to blow up the locusts. Yes, the Saudis and Iranians are having a real war for real reasons, but maybe once in a while a timeout would make sense. Instead, those locust swarms have exploded. So what was the second line of the defense? It was spraying the locusts in Somalia and other East African nations. But that didn't happen because the governments there were concerned about the crop dusters getting shot out of the air. So now massive amounts of land have been denuded and the locusts are eating as much each day as all the humans in Kenya. East Africa isn't rich, but it is about to get a whole lot poorer. In the short term, I think we can help. Chocolate-covered locust recipes, though, will only go so far. Normally, we send in bags of grain through some massive and inefficient UN program, but this tends to devastate local producers. The good thing is times have changed and vast areas in these countries have mobile phone access. Instead of sending food, I'd send in teams with fingerprint scanners and cheap mobile phones. We'd make sure that every adult had a phone and we'd link the SIM cards in our own databases to their fingerprints and the fingerprints of their children. Then we'd remotely load the phones with emergency money. The locals could use that money to cover their short-term needs. They could use the money to buy crops from nearby districts or countries, propping up those local farming industries, or they could buy crops from overseas, propping up their local distribution industries. In either case, there's a chance for local industry to survive and local players to build up their distribution capabilities. This is a far better outcome than the traditional approach, which is to airdrop lots of grain and bankrupt everybody who's trying to grow a crop locally. Of course, this is not a perfect solution. It's just a better one. And, of course, it is only a short-term intervention. The long-term problem remains the same. There is a cultural challenge. Moving from tribal war to conflicts that can be conducted in other ways, like at the ballot box, is a cultural challenge. Staying in an environment in which conflicts are conducted through ways like the ballot box instead of going to violence is a cultural challenge. Moving from top-down hierarchy to collaborative problem-solving is a cultural challenge. Continuing to use that collaborative problem-solving is also a cultural challenge. And there are no quick fixes to cultural challenges. We know from experience that you don't tend to make these problems any better through brute force. And so, we have learned to ignore them. We train ourselves to ignore six million dead in the war in Congo, a few years back, of course, because brutal, massive wars is what Africans do, and we couldn't do anything to stop them even if we tried. We train ourselves to ignore local swarms and Chinese communist dysfunction and Latin American implosions because those are Africans and Chinese and Latin American problems, and we couldn't do anything to make it better even if we tried but we can make it better. What we do is often inappropriate for those cultures and the realities of the people who live in them, but it doesn't mean we don't have anything to teach. 
Instead, we can learn from the best of what we have and the best of what we do. And with more than a dose of humility, we can think about how to share those lessons. Personally, I lean towards the city on the hill as the best long-term method of changing things. Hong Kong is a city on the hill, which modeled economic changes that have swept China. Increasingly, both Hong Kong and Taiwan are models of political change as well. In a way, these places combine the best of what the West has to offer with the best of what Chinese culture brings to the table. This mixing of cultures is what makes civilizations that form on the edges of other major cultures so uniquely impressive. So we should extend this model. In exchange for certain favors, regional powers might invite us to set up little cities in the hill. And through these cities, we might just be able to moderate the challenges that threaten not only individual regions, but increasingly often, the world. I'd venture that, just as with Hong Kong, we learned as much from these little cities on the hill as the places and the people who host them. Of course, this model doesn't just apply to international politics. Today, we are facing the possibility of a pandemic. Think about it this way. If 50% of the world gets coronavirus, and it is fatal to 3% of the world, the current and almost certainly wrong WHO estimates, then 111 million people will die. Of course, those 111 million people will eventually die anyway. The only issue is one of timing. In the case of the elderly, the virus might shorten lives by anywhere from a few months or a few days to 20 years. That is one kind of timing. But there is another kind of timing. I've just spent a year mourning my mother. The bulk of that was spent celebrating and sharing her life and her accomplishments. As an example, we've just republished two of her books on Amazon, Reflections on the Logic of the Good and A River Wind Out of Eden. I expect more than a few people will buy them. I've been successfully integrating my mother into the reality of those who have survived her, including those who never met her. But in a time of war, natural catastrophe, illness, disaster, or whatever, you can't do that. The hits are too rapid for the normal process of mourning to unfold. This is doubly so when traditions like Shiva, funeral services, or the mourning tents are limited. In these situations, people become statistics. And you and I don't want to be statistics. Put it another way. Instead of the dead being integrated into their communities, or as the Torah puts it, joining with their people, they disappear. And you and I don't want to disappear. So what can we do? Well, chances are the coronavirus won't kill you or those you love. But why not plan for the worst? It's easy. Just seek out the best in those you know and love, and then make what you find a part of your own reality. Build a city on the hill within yourself, by learning from the best of what others have to offer and of what you have to offer. If enough people do this, then nobody will be a statistic. Instead, we will all be lifted up, no matter what challenges face us. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful week. <laughs>